0: Join I Am A Watchman Ministries Managing Editor, Joe Kerr, with co-host Dylan Burroughs, bringing you a fascinating discussion regarding the importance of Bible prophecy and Christian living today as it relates to our responsibility as believers to be watchmen.
1: This is A View from the Wall. Welcome to today's episode of A View from the Wall. I'm Dylan Burroughs, along with I Am A Watchman Managing Editor, Joe Kerr. And thank you for being with us today. What would you say if I asked you who are the Nephilim in the Bible? Would you be able to answer? Many people cannot, and today's guest has written a comprehensive work on the topic. With us today is Ryan Peterson, author of Judgment of the Nephilim. Let me tell you a little bit about Ryan as we begin. Ryan is a biblical researcher and writer with an emphasis in ancient Hebrew thought and theology. He received his degree from the University of Rochester and his JD from Columbia University Law School. He resides in the New York City area with his family, and we're glad to have him with us today. Ryan, welcome to the program.
2: Hi, thank you for having me. I'm glad to
1: be on. Yes, well, we're glad to have you, and let's dive right in today. Your work is on the judgment of the Nephilim. It's a comprehensive biblical study of the topic, and using only scripture, we are given a complete picture of the war between two bloodlines, the lineage of the Messiah and the seed of Satan. So I want to begin with your interest in the topic. Ryan, how did you, a law school grad in New York City, become an expert on the topic of the Nephilim?
2: I was... uh... Raised going to church, uh, but at the same time, you know, in my career my kind of career aspirations, I wanted to go to law school, become an attorney. That was kind of my, always my, my, my path. And so I was able to achieve that. And after graduating law school, I was working down in Wall Street. And it was really just a time of just a lot of spiritual darkness in my life. I just didn't have, feel a strong purpose at all, even though I kind of achieved my worldly goals. and what, And I wasn't serving God in any meaningful way. And what really uh, brought me back to really dedicating, you know, my time and my my my, my efforts to serving God was uh, Bible prophecy ministries, you know, ministries like yours that were trying to be a watchman, wake up society, to show how world events are converging with Bible prophecy. And so I'd always been very much into politics and following them, and. I received a DVD, it was kind of a throw-in for a package of DVDs I purchased from an online Bible prophecy ministry about the Nephilim. And once I understood the Bible in that context, it really changed, you know, just everything for me. And I felt there was a need to really do a thorough deep dive into Scripture and pull out everything, because I think there are a lot of passages that deal with this battle between these bloodlines in Scripture, and I felt that if you could have a source that, that was just based on the Bible... It would be great. So I, I took on that task and wrote it.
3: And it has become the textbook, not only on the subject of the Nephilim, but on that subject of the human DNA and the bloodline that goes through the scripture. So let's take it there. Go back to the very beginning, back to the very beginning of beginnings to the book of Genesis. How did all this supernatural battle begin?
2: Yeah, sure. So I really started, uh, for me, what I call the ultimate prophecy. And then we look at the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve obviously committing the first sin, eating from the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God pronounced the sentence, basically the punishment, obviously, of Adam, of Eve, but then specifically the serpent, of the devil, and prophesied that the devil would have his head bruised or crushed by the seed of the woman that this, that prophecy, which is of course the prophecy Genesis 315 of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, that from the perspective of the Nephilim and what's, what took place generations later, that's what set everything in motion, because that was the point that Satan was on notice, that his conqueror would be a human child. It was not going to be a legion of angels attacking him and you know, apprehending him. It was going to be a human child, a child born of a woman. A son one day would be his conqueror. And so that set his sights on humanity and trying to stop that birth from either taking place or destroying that child or just ruining the human lineage altogether to prevent that from happening. And we even see an image of this in Revelation chapter 12, of course, where John has this image where he sees the woman with uh, the stars at her head, the moon at her feet. And the dragon coming to just come and destroy her child. I believe that woman's a representation of Israel. I think she's the fulfillment kind of of the vision, the dream that Joseph had in Genesis 27, where he sees his own family, the twelve tribes of Israel. And the man child she gives birth to is called to heaven. I believe is a representation of Christ. Israel giving birth to the Messiah, and where, what is the devil's genesis to destroy that child. And I, so I think that is what leads us ultimately to Genesis chapter six. And even if you look at Cain and Abel. For all intents and purposes, Cain, who was the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, could have been the Messiah. He could have been the prophesied seed of the woman. He was the first seed born of Adam and Eve. And I'm speaking, of course, from the enemy's perspective. God obviously knows all this beforehand. But from the enemy's perspective, he could have been the Messiah. And so what happens is, of course, he's lured into sin. He's a rebel against God spiritually, and he not only is Lord, he murders his brother Abel, who was righteous. And so it was almost like the devil's able to eliminate two birds with one stone. And fortunately, what God did was separate the wicked line of Cain from the rest of the godly line. He, He banishes Cain from Eden altogether, and Cain becomes a fugitive. And that allowed the godly line. The bloodline that would lead to Messiah to grow and expand. And what did God keep telling Eve? Be fruitful, multiply. And as humanity, the population expanded, that's when Satan had to shift gears and then do a more widespread plan to try and corrupt humanity and prevent this birth. And that takes us to Genesis 6. And I think that's ultimately why a new plan had to happen where rather than just going one son at a time, Satan wanted to use what I call nuclear bomb to try and corrupt humanity and prevent this. And that takes to Genesis <laughs> 6, where we're told, of course, the sons of God then enter the picture to take human wives and have them give birth to the Nephilim.
3: Talk about that a little bit, because although many of our Watchmen community and listeners know what the Nephilim refers to, give us a definition of exactly what you mean when you talk about the Nephilim.
2: Absolutely. So Nephilim, or uh, Nephilim, which is... Actually, an Aramaic term that was borrowed into Hebrew uh, means giant. And the Nephilim were the hybrid offspring of fallen angels and human women. And really, the pivotal passage that really establishes this is, of course, in Genesis chapter 6, when men began to multiply upon the earth, is what we read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, and daughters were born unto them. And then we get to verse 2, this is where it gets critical because it says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, the question turns on who are these sons of God? Are we talking about normal men who are just godly men, so therefore they have the title sons of God, or were they angels? And of course, my belief, based on Scripture— is that these were angels. And, a, and an easy way to know this and get confirmation, there are really two ways we find confirmation in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The first is that when you look at the Hebrew translation of this term, sons of God, which is benai ha elohim in Hebrew, that term is only used in the Old Testament to refer to angels. And we can find these examples in Job chapters 1 and 2 obviously we know the story of Job, that he's been, there's this contest that's going to ultimately take place that uh, centered on Job's life, testing his faith. But the interesting thing about that, when God is speaking to Satan, it says in verse 6 of Job chapter 1, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And of course, the Lord says to Satan, when comest come and they have this conversation. But in verse six, it sets the setting that this is in heaven. It says the sons of God, the B'nai Ha Elohim, were there presenting themselves before the throne of God. And there's another example again in Job chapter two, there's another day in verse one, where the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. So again, we see this confirmation that this is a reference to angelic beings. That's the Old Testament confirmation.
1: Well, this is some fascinating info on the Nephilim of the Bible in Genesis 6. We'll talk more about it in just a moment. Stick with us here on A View from the Wall.
0: From I Am a Watchman Ministries, here's today's I Am a Watchman Minute. Being willing to step out for God and do the unusual is a mark of spiritual maturity. Consider the prophet Ezekiel. He was the son of a priest from a very distinguished family, but God told Ezekiel to do things that many thought were undignified. For example, in his preaching he utilized drama and shadow puppets and miniature props. He cut his hair and burned some and buried some and threw some to the wind. Once he allowed himself to be tied up for 430 days. He was radical for God, but also righteous before God. Ezekiel was a watchman, and watchmen faithfully follow God's leading, period. The I Am A Watchman ministry is here to help you grow in Christ, and as He leads, be radical for God. Are you willing to be radical for God? Be bold. Be faithful. Be a watchman. I am a watchman.com.
1: Welcome back to A View from the Wall. We're here with Ryan Pitterson talking about the Nephilim. And before the break, we were talking about how this idea of the sons of God is mentioned not just in Genesis 6, but also in the book of Job, chapters 1 and 2. So, Ryan, as we pick back up in this discussion, explain why this is significant in this discussion about the Nephilim.
2: Yeah, I mean, because this is really, you know, a lot to eat before. To even understand or or take, accept this concept as being true and real doctrine, biblical sound, biblical doctrine, a lot of it really turns on this phrase, sons of God and who they were. And so, when you look in the New Testament, you'll find the first, I think, principal passage is in the book of Jude. And the book of Jude, in verses 6 and 7, of course, Jude has one chapter, uh, it makes a specific reference to this sin, the sin of fornication that the angels committed in Genesis 6. It's a direct reference to it. And so the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he, meaning God, hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So it's directly referring to a group of angels who sinned against God. For And how, what was their sin? That just like Sodom and Gomorrah, they gave themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, which in this case was human women. So this was a violation, obviously. It was fornication, a violation of God's genetic order, because you had angels now having children and fornicating with human women, which led to the birth of the Nephilim.
3: So make the connection for us there, because you mentioned earlier giants, and the Bible talks about giants many places in the Old Testament and a couple of places in the New Testament. How are the Nephilim and the giants of the Old Testament connected?
2: Sure. So the, the Nephilim are the giants. So, you know, going back to Genesis 6, it says that they're, you know, the sons of God to the soldiers of men that they were fair, right in Genesis Chapter six, verse four, says there were giants in the earth in those days. And that term for giants in Hebrew is Nephilim, Nephilim. So the Nephilim were in the earth. They were the offspring. And they were obviously giant physically large, supernaturally strong, hybrid beings who were just evil and corrupting the world. They were accelerating the corruption genetically and morally and spiritually in the earth. And this was the reason why God had to use such an extreme punishment like the flood. The flood wasn't just God saying humanity is just sinning. And I'm just going to wipe them out down, except for eight people. It was a rescue. It was salvation to preserve what was left of humanity that was still purely human. And there's another interesting passage about that in reference to Noah, you know, Genesis 6 says that Noah found grace in the eyes of God, but it says that Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And that term perfect, tamim in Hebrew, refers to a physical perfection. It's the same term that's used to refer to a lamb, a sacrificial lamb that should be without blemish in, that we find in, in the Levitical law, the exact same term. So I think what the scripture is telling us that he was purely human, in addition, of course, to being a believer in God. And therefore, he could restart the human race after the
1: flood. No, that's a great take on it. Uh, I think most people listening are familiar with Goliath and the story of David and Goliath, with Goliath being a giant, but there are other places in the Old Testament. First Chronicles chapter 20 verse 6 talks about a battle that took place at Gath, the same town where Goliath was from, and a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all, who was killed during that time. So there are other examples of these giants physically who were the enemies of God's people, but this isn't just in the Bible, is it? There are other stories as well that talk about giants throughout, um, you know, the history of the human race. What is the relationship between that and what we see in the Bible today?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's the beauty of Scripture because, you know, there's a little passage in Genesis 6 where it says that these giants were the men of renown. The Bible is acknowledging that when you look at the mythologies, you know, you think about even just Greek mythology, some of the most well-known mythology where you have beings like Hercules, Achilles, they are the offspring of a god and a human woman. They are the hybrid offspring. And so... This these ancient mythologies that are well known and some not as well known, where you you'll find giants, you'll find hybrid beings. This is all based; it all goes back to this era, Genesis chapter six. It was just the pagan countries. This was their own spin on the account of Genesis six that was handed down over generations, over centuries. And the the amazing thing is, a lot of what I want to bring out in the book is that you have church fathers, you have theologians, you have pastors, you have laymen, laywomen over centuries who wrote about this, who wrote about the Nephilim, who understood that they were hybrid offspring, they understood that they were giants, that fallen angels married human women, and there. so I wanted to bring out a lot of their writings, and you, going back to Justin Martyr, so you're just two generations or so removed from, from the apostles of Christ. He wrote that the Greek gods were all a stake a just a just a, a take on Genesis 6. And so even back in the you know second century Christianity they recognized that the tales of gods and goddesses and titans and things of that nature and among the different cultures were all just a spin on what really took place as described in Genesis chapter 6.
1: Oh, well, that's interesting. I wanted to jump in here and ask a question. In Genesis seven, it talks about this idea that the Nephilim survived the time of the flood and this idea that there might still be Nephilim giants, not just throughout history, but possibly even in the world today. I mean, what what does that even look like? Is that even possible? Uh, what's the the reality behind the story here?
2: Yeah, sure. So I think that you know you already pointed out first Chronicles uh, chapter twenty, where you really see the, the kind of the last in chapter twenty one where you see the kind of a final mentions of giants in scripture, of course. Moses battled giants, uh, Joshua battled giants all through the wars of Canaan, and then ultimately David and his mighty men battled giants. And so I think over time and over generations, the DNA was just less and less prevalent of the giants, where they were no longer mentioned in Scripture. But as we approach the end times, you know, what I look to in terms of could they exist now, could they return, is an interesting passage in Daniel chapter 2 which, of course, is with Daniel interpreting the dream of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that has the various body parts, a head of gold, torso of silver, right. midsection of brass, and then you get to the toes where they're iron and miry clay. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 43, there's this verse that in the— and I believe the toes are it's a reference to an end-times kingdom. It says that they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. And so I think that that passage— is a reference to this being attempted once again in the end times, this effort to try and bring the Nephilim back, this return of the sons of God. And of course, we know from the book of Revelation that's like as it was in the days of Noah, in the days of Noah, you had angels openly interacting with humanity. Well, in the end times, in the book of Revelation, the same thing is going to take place. In Revelation chapter 9, the abyss is opened. The exact place that Scripture says these angels are imprisoned, it is opened. And you have these beings emerge that are hybrid-looking beings. They're, they're called locusts, but they have a face like a man, teeth like a lion, hair like a woman. they these, these grotesque beings. And then also in Revelation 12, we're told that Satan and his angels will be cast out of heaven and come to earth. And it says, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. So could this happen again in the end times? I think it's going to be Attempted. And the ultimate, I think, you know, uh, fulfillment of that, what I'm really researching now is we look at the Antichrist, who's described as a man and a beast, a beast with the number of a man. He, I believe, could be the ultimate fulfillment as the seed of the serpent prophesied in Genesis
1: 3.15. Well, that's fascinating. And we definitely want to look at how this connects with the end times. And we'll do that right when we come back after this break on A View from the Wall.
2: Wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, disasters, violence, immorality, and political corruption. Is there any hope? The answer is yes, but how can you know? Plan now to attend the Hope for Our Times conference June 28th through the 30th in Indian Wells with over 15 world-class speakers, including Pastor James Cadiz. We're not of those people that are going to be overtaken like a thief. Jan Markel.
0: Things are all falling in place, and that's the good news. Dr. David Reagan. God has used this nation, our wealth, and our ingenuity to put the gospel out
2: all over the world. And Pastor Jack Hibbs. When you get together with the Lord in these last days,
3: expect Him to speak to you.
2: Reserve your spot for this powerful conference, the Hope for Our Times Conference, June 28th through the 30th in Indian Wells. Log on to HopeForOurTimes.com. A limited number of rooms at the Hyatt Regency have been reserved at a special rate, so log on today at HopeForOurTimes.com. HopeForOurTimes.com.
1: Welcome back to A View from the Wall. We're here with Brian Peterson talking about the Nephilim and seeing a connection between the Nephilim of Genesis and the end times. Joe, talk a little bit about this and get us started in this segment. Well,
3: we've talked a lot about the Old Testament, but today we see the paranormal and supernatural themes on every television, network, cable channel, everything. The world's fascinated with the demonic. And in some of the shows, demons aren't even portrayed as demonic. They're let's just say it, they're heroic. Uh, Evil isn't evil. So how does the world get so fascinated with that now? How should Christians treat that theme? And is that something that the enemy's using to prepare us to just kind of swallow this whole lie when the Nephilim show up again?
2: Yeah, Satan is going to mimic God in every aspect. So like we plant seeds of the gospel, the the enemy is planting seeds of, of his false message of his deception that's going to lead to the grand delusion right the, the acceptance of antichrist as messiah and so when we look at pop culture and you have shows you know like supernatural where with the hero there's a nephilim who's the son of the devil or a show like lucifer where lucifer is the sympathetic figure we're being prepped and society is being prepped to be fascinated by the occult by the devil by demons and i think that it's established, I think, biblically, what I really try to establish in in the book, in Judgment of Nephilim, is that the demons themselves are the spirits of the fallen giants. And a lot of what they do is trying to lure humanity into idolatry, into paganism, which we see all stated throughout Scripture. I mean, it says even in the end times that men will teach doctrines of demons. In Revelation chapter 16, you have the Antichrist and the false prophet and the devil releasing demons that are as frogs, that that lure the leaders of the earth to come fight the battle of Armageddon. So demons kind of play this function of deceiving us and leading us to false worship. And I think that's a lot of what's taking place with the entertainment. And so how is it going to play out in the end times? I think that as we get more, as society, unbelieving society moves away from God. They're going to be open to accepting all sorts of things. Because we know from scripture these fallen angels are going to come back on earth and manifest. But how are they going to present themselves? They're going to they may say they're aliens. They may say that they are they're the true good angels. There's going to be some deception tied to it. And the more society is prepared for that and getting into a cult in the new age the easier it's going to be to deceive because ultimately those beings are going to point to the Antichrist and say well this is your Messiah and of course that's the grand illusion that society is going to fall for
1: Yes, well, in the end times, there's going to be this judgment of the Nephilim, uh, maybe somewhat combined with the Armageddon story, but the way you've written the account, it's more than just a story of God's justice. Explain a little bit how we can see the gospel in the judgment of the Nephilim as we look at the broader picture of Scripture.
2: Absolutely. So. The book really begins and ends with Jesus Christ. This is what it was all about. It was about the seed of the woman. And and yes. what, uh, I think we, when you examine the numerous role, there are so many passages in Scripture that deal with the giants and deal with this ongoing battle. Time and time again, God is the one intervening directly to save humanity, whether it's the flood whether it's going before the Israelites when they battled King Adam of Bashan, another giant, whether it was in Canaan when God brought down the walls of Jericho in a, in a land that was full of giants of Nephilim, God is the one. So I think that the message is that God saves, which is the name Jesus, Yeshua, that God saves. And so I think that is really the thread that runs through the entire book. And ultimately when we are going to be saved from the seed of the serpent, from the Antichrist, that this, that's when it really comes to its ultimate conclusion. And then, of course, we know from Scripture, from Revelation 19 and 20, that Jesus is going to come himself and destroy the Antichrist with the brightness of his coming, with the sword of his mouth. And so, in even at the very end, when the last seed of the serpent is conquered, it's Jesus at the forefront. So, this is really all about you know, what Christ does and what God does out of love to protect humanity, because Satan wants to turn us from something other than image bearers of God. And I think even when you look at the mark of the beast and the efforts that are going to take place in the end times to corrupt our genetics, once again, it's about making us something other than image bearers of God so we can be disqualified from salvation. But God, of course, is going to rescue us. And we put faith in him and trust in Christ and we are, have our eyes open. We won't accept that and God will save us from that preserve us so we can be perfected in him.
3: Ryan, I love the way you weave the gospel through the book and don't leave it a hopeless account. There are times where it looks like these days, it looks like the enemy's winning, but we know it's not over yet. We serve a community of watchmen and women around the world, and they're actively seeking to watch, warn, witness, and as Paul said, finish well. What message of hope and encouragement do watchmen need in these last days?
2: In this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, is what Jesus told us. And so those are the words of our Savior. And so as we approach these times, it might seem scary. It might seem that like the world is getting darker and darker. But just know, beloved believer, that this is what Christ told us would happen. So we're, getting, we're in a scary time, but also an exciting time because we are— rapidly approaching the end times prophetic events. And so I would say, keep looking up, keep looking up, keep standing on the Bible, keep sharing the light of the gospel in this dark world, because our savior is coming back and the time of the great tribulation is coming, but we can know and trust in the promises. So even when we see things that seem disturbing, like, wow, this world is falling away into sin. It's just more confirmation that our Bible is true and that our God's word is true. So we can trust him that much more. So um, that is the message. Just remember that through all this, God is with us, and He will be there for us, just as He was in the days of Noah. He will be there in the end times as
1: well. That's well said. And we've been listening to Ryan Peterson, author of Judgment of the Nephilim. And just to be clear, if you want to get this information for yourself, you can go to judgmentofthenephilim.com, where you can find out more about his book, the ebook, as well as the DVD. And we want to encourage you to check that out and pick up a copy for your own study. And again, we want to thank you for being with us on A View from the Wall. You can check out our podcast at Iamawatchman.com and subscribe to our email for all the latest. stuff. Finally, you can also subscribe to us on YouTube or our podcast on soundcloud.com. We look forward to joining you next time on A View from the Wall.